Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Elodie Passaport. Uh, she's an associate professor uh, at the University of Toronto. She's part of the uh, Department of Environmental Engineering, and we're going to talk about her research into uh, microplastics and contaminants. So, Elodie, thanks for coming. Hi, thank you for inviting me. If you would, tell me a bit about your background and what your current research is about. Yeah, sure. So right now I'm an associate professor, as you said, at the University of Toronto. I'm actually cross-appointed in uh, the Department of Civil and Mineral Engineering and the Department of Chemical Engineering and Applied Chemistry. And my own educational background is in chemical engineering. And I've always been interested in the chemical engineering processes, but really applied to environmental processes. And so my work over the you know, since the past 10, 15 years uh, has been on environmental remediation, broadly defined. So I study how contaminants are transported in the environment and how we can get rid of them. So I don't really look at removing them from the source, so emitting less contaminants, but really what do we do when they are there? And I tend to work on kind of nature-based solution or what we would also call passive water treatment systems. And one easy example to picture of that is uh, wetlands or constructed wetlands. So basically a pond with plants. And we're looking at how we can use this kind of system to um, get rid of the contaminants in a, in a safe way. What kind of contaminants and where? Like what's an example of what you've worked on? Yeah, so we've looked at many different contaminants. We I started looking... From my PhD research in France, um, we started to look at pesticides in agricultural areas. And then later on, I looked at pharmaceuticals, personal care products, and then other types of chemicals that you can find in um, urban stormwater runoff, such as corrosion inhibitors, uh, etc. Right now, for example, I'm working with triclosan, which is an antibacterial molecule incorporated in many consumer products. And it's an interesting molecule because it it tends to photodegrade quite easily. So photodegrades means that the sunlight, when it hits the molecule, can induce the breaking of chemical bonds. And so we try to better understand this reaction mechanism and how we can make this happen in natural wetland systems. What kind of chemicals and which kind of bonds are you looking into breaking? Yeah, so triclosan is um, an organic molecule. So it has uh, a few carbon atoms, two benzene rings, so two rings of carbons, and it contains three chlorine atoms. Okay, that's why it's called triclosan. Okay, you can hear the tri for three and clo for chlorine. And so with when you 
when this molecule transforms into the environment, many different reaction mechanisms can occur, and some of them induce the breaking of carbon-carbon or carbon-chlorine bonds or the formation of new bonds. And so depending on the pathway that this transformation takes, you can create sometimes more toxic byproducts. And that's very, you know, worrisome, of course, because you want to transform this molecule, but hopefully do something that's less toxic, right? You're looking at how we can do this and how you can transform this molecule without the accumulation of toxic byproducts. Well, what kind of byproducts does it form naturally without any human intervention and which ones are problematic? Yeah, so 2,4-dichlorophenol, for example, is one of them. So it's a molecule that's incorporated into the US EPA list for priority contaminants and is one of the dominant transformation products of triclosane. So when triclosan transforms naturally into the environment, for example, under the action of microbes or light, it can form this molecule. And so in our work, for example, um, looking at removing basically triclosan from wetlands using the action of sunlight, we try to identify which conditions of the water chemistry, which we could play with when designing this wetland, which condition would lead to the least accumulation of 2,4-dichlorophenol so that triclosan can transform, but doesn't transform into something that would be more toxic. Is there any way to stop triclosan from degrading? And is there any point in doing that? Is it toxic already as triclosan? Is there no point in and trying to prevent it from degrade, degrading, or can you? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, and I can see how I would lead you to think this way. But the triclosan, you know, it's, it's, it's probably not the most toxic molecule in the whole world, but it is a molecule that has shown toxic effects on organisms. So it's been a molecule of concern, and it's um, partially regulated or regulated in different countries, for example, in Europe and in other places. So... The, the main goal is, you know, ideally to get rid of it or replace it with some less toxic molecule. And so it is good to want to remove it to, in other words, to transform it. But ideally, ideally, we would transform it to less toxic byproducts so that when it transforms, it, it, it leaves behind, you know, a less toxic mixture. And, and that's things like this that we've been investigating in this context. What tends to break it down? Is it sunlight or is there other stuff in the water that does it? Like what's the most active things that break it down? Yeah, so actually sunlight works really well and really fast. And um, we triclosan is a molecule that it has a pKa. So without entering into details, it is faster to degrade when the pH of the water is high. And so it will photodegrade very fast and very efficiently, especially when the water pH is high. And this led us to investigate if we could use algae as a way to help triclosan phototransformation. Why? Because algae, when they grow naturally in the water, in lagoon, lake, or wetlands, especially open water areas of wetlands, during the day, the algae do photosynthesis and by using the sunlight and they take up the CO2 from the water, thus naturally increasing the pH of the water. And so we looked into this and we also found that algae themselves are able to take up and transform triclosan themselves. So photodegradation is definitely the process that we found as the most efficient and the fastest on tri- for triclosan transformation, but other 
stuff in the water, the bacteria, but also the algae, as we showed, are also able to transform this molecule into less toxic products. So a lot of natural processes can help get rid of this molecule, like many others. Well, where do these effluents come from? And could you put a, um, a section of stream that has a lot of algae in it that it would flow through first and then release it? Would that help? <laughs> Yeah, so that's kind of our, this is kind of our theory, I guess. Um, so trichosome, because it's a molecule incorporating into, incorporated into consumer products, um, you tend to find it in um, domestic wastewater. And so it goes through wastewater treatment plants. A portion of the trichosome is removed by the wastewater treatment plants, depending on how they're designed. But then it's in the effluent of the wastewater treatment plant and therefore reaches, you know, whatever lake or river uh, where the effluents are discharged into. And so often some wastewater treatment plants include um, constructed wetlands as part of a kind of third step, polishing step after all the fancier water treatment, the wastewater treatment technologies. And so in, in, in this kind of wetland polishing step, you could indeed have some open water area, which would be more like an algae pond um, where algae would naturally develop and then kind of more clear water where you might have more emergent plants like we can imagine a, a wetland being. And so this um, indeed has the potential to remove some of the trichosome. Is there any point in taking an effluent stream and lowering the pH substantially, allowing some things to come out of solution? and then bringing it all the way up again high to get other stuff out of solution? Um, I wouldn't recommend this. <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, I'm interested in looking at how we can play with environmental variables in the design and operation of this kind of systems. But I'll be very careful in doing this in the field. And I think there's a lot to be checked in the lab so that we don't create a bigger problem. What you're suggesting potentially could work, but it would have to be verified, double, triple checked uh, before this is actually implemented. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Oh, sure. I'm, but I'm, you know, probably the methods you're using would have to be double checked and verified as well, right? Well, what, what happens to uh, a waste stream as you get to lower pH or, high, you know, higher pH? That, like you said, it seems to preferentially uh, break down triclosan in a better way. But are there mm -hmm. other compounds of concern that, you know, either a very low or a very high pH would also help? Yeah. And so so every compound is different, of course. So it, it, in this case, the pH affects compounds that typically have protons that they can easily exchange. So that's the case of triclosome. At high pH, it's uh, on its ionic form. So the proton is gone. And this is a form of the molecule that absorbs light energy more efficiently. 
Whereas for other molecules, it's the opposite. So for example, we've been working on benzotriazole. Benzotriazole is a corrosion inhibitor and it's incorporating into uh, many vehicle fluids and deicers uh, and things like this. So we find it in urban stormwater runoff because it's found in deicer fluids, but we also found it in uh, municipal wastewater because it's used as a corrosion inhibitor in um, detergent for dishwashing detergents. So we find it everywhere. And trichl- and desotriazole is the opposite of triclosan. It tends to photodegrade faster at lower pH. And so for molecules like this, you know, like there's not one solution for everything. You really have to think about what is the actual chemical cocktail that I have in a given contaminated effluent and what's the best condition for this given chemical cocktail that I want to uh, play with. And do you deal with um, microplastics and effluents or do you deal with like flocculants or removing, you know, large uh, like turbidity causing type of uh, compounds? Yeah. So our work on microplastics is really in the context of urban uh, stormwater runoff. So we started to work on microplastics about four years ago and it started from our observation that a type of urban stormwater green infrastructure called bioretention cell, which I can define in a minute, these systems, these bioretention cells were very efficient at decreasing the pollution by suspended solids. So just to, to step back a minute, bioretention cells are green infrastructure, stormwater kind of control system, and uh, they are designed in by um, excavating the natural soil replacing it with what we call an engineered media, which often is mainly sand, so uh, where the water can go through very fast. And it's planted, so you have like pretty plants on it, and sometimes you have mulch, so hardwood mulch on top of the system. These bioretention cells are placed in urban environments where most of the surfaces are impermeable, and they provide an opportunity for the stormwater runoff to infiltrate. When it rains, like today, and you are in a big city where all the services are impermeable. Here around me, we only have buildings, um, sidewalks, roads, parking lots. When it rains, the water just accumulates on these impermeable surfaces, which creates a risk of flooding. So now more and more cities try to implement this green infrastructure, including bioretention cells, or there can simply be stormwater ponds or green roofs or permeable pavements. And the systems are here to just provide an opportunity for the stormwater to infiltrate and accumulate less and therefore reduce the risk of flooding. So managing the quantity of water, the peak flows of water and the volumes of stormwater water is the main goal of this kind of green infrastructure. But research has shown that they can also improve water quality as the water infiltrates to them. And one way by which they improve water quality is by basically physical filtration of the particulate, so the suspended solid that you might have in stormwater runoff. And so they are very efficient in removing particles. And because they're very efficient at removing this suspended solids, this particle, we hypothesize that it would probably be very efficient in removing microplastics. And so that's what we studied um, with one of our PhD students, uh, Kelsey Smith, and we looked at the influent and effluent of a bioretention cell that we've been studying for, you know, a few years. So we know the system very well. And we were able to demonstrate that we had more than an 80% decrease in the concentration of microplastics between the inlet and outlet of the system. 
here I want to be careful when I talk about microplastic in the context of this work, we're talking about microplastics particles that are more than 100 micron in size. So between 100 micron and five, milli and five millimeters. And I want to specify this because now we're working on the smallest size range and um, it looks like the story might be similar, but definitely more complicated because as you go down to the lower sizes, then the particles might be more able to transport into the pore of uh, this bioretention cells engineered soil media. So, so, so what have you observed? Have you looked at different effluents and try to characterize the size distribution and the morphology distribution of uh, the microplastics in them? Like what's known? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so our paper was really one of the first that showed that, first of all, bioretention cell can remove some of these microplastics in the size ranges that we looked at, okay? And we found uh, one of the main things that we found that was quite surprising is that there were lots of fibers in our samples. And by looking more in depth into where these fibers came from, we observed that a lot of them came from atmospheric deposition. So fibers can be transported over very long, you know, ranges uh, in the atmosphere. And we had a lot, a lot of fibers. The second thing that we found, um, and we're finding more and more now in some other samples that we have, is rubber. We found lots of different small particles that we think are rubber. It's very difficult to verify that a given particle is actually rubber. It's difficult to analyze by the techniques that exist so far, but um, there's very high chances that what we are we're observing is lots of different rubber particles. That probably comes from, you know, car tires and maybe in our cases from some of the pavement that we're looking at. How does pH affect the degradation of microplastics or their, their uh, continued transformation into maybe smaller pieces? What have you noticed? So I, I don't know if there's any pH, any known pH effect. Uh, we, we definitely did not look into this uh, in this work. And I'd like to highlight that microplastics are a, a range of many different stuff, right? You have fibers, fragments, film, rubber, and then you have different uh, polymer types, polyethylene, um, polyvinyl chloride, polyester, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very big range of contaminants. They have different shape, which also affects their, their environmental fate, um, different colors that might affect how they are taken up by organisms, for example. They have different chemicals um, that were incorporated into the manufacturing process or contaminants that absorb into the plastics that are being transported into the environment. So there are many different types, okay? Like it's very kind of complex suite of chemicals. And so they might degrade, you know, slowly they might degrade chemically and maybe the pH could affect their degradation, but um, it would affect them in, in many different ways depending on what you start with, okay? Whether you start with a bead that's polyethylene or whether you start with a fiber that's polyester, you will have very com different um, results just because they are different contaminants, simply put. Well, it sounds like the same thing with any waste stream, any effluent, there's many different compounds and there's turbidity, there's free-floating stuff, there's, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do you, does anyone know if microplastics are amenable to flocculation of any kind or, you know, uh, in settling tanks, precipitating out? It's like, what, what are some of the strategies used to get rid of them? Uh, I'm not quite sure, actually, about that. Yeah, so I won't be able to help you on this. Okay, I understand. 
Um, do you know how they interact with some of the compounds you look you, you look at, like um, does triclosan or any of these other compounds mm-hmm. bind to microplastics or kind of uh, you know stick to them and agglomerate them? Yeah, so it sounds like they, they definitely can absorb. I mean, they are hydrophobic by nature. Most of this micro, most of these plastic materials, and therefore they might they tend to accumulate more hydrophilic compounds, probably such as triclosan. We don't look into this specifically. It's quite difficult to do this um, and to do this, you know, at environmentally relevant concentration. But many other groups have looked into this. I don't think, I I remember seeing a paper where um, they were showing that, I don't think they contribute a very significant portion of the transport of organic chemicals compared to, you know, the chemicals being transported in their dissolved phase. So I would, I think they do contribute to the transport of these chemicals, but relatively to the overall mass of chemicals in the environment, I don't think that microplastic contributes a very significant portion. So what are some uh, hypotheses you're testing about remediating wastewater right now? For microplastics, I suppose you mean? Just in general, you know, like I'd like to go back to your specific research what are mm-hmm. some of the new techniques or things that you're looking at and evaluating mm-hmm. beyond microbes? So group- just cleaning up effluents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my group really focuses on what we call this passive water treatment system. So I don't look at the more fancy um, technologies that are being developed in the drinking water and wastewater industry, uh, such as you know advanced oxidation processes, ozone treatment, reverse osmosis, or things like this. Uh, we don't look into this in my group. We really focus on the um, natural-based type of treatment systems. And so one of them is dysbioretention cells. I think they are very, I think they have significant potential and same as constructed wetlands, significant potential to improve water quality. But I also think that there is lots of room for improvement. In other words, you know, as I said earlier, for example, triclosan and benzotriazole, both like these two model or example contaminants can both be transformed by light when they are in water. So you can imagine a pond where there is open water and the sand hits the water. They can be transformed by light. However, they, they require, these two molecules require opposite condition for efficient phototransformation. So I believe that there's room for improvement and that we can better understand the transfer and transformation processes that govern the fate of these contaminants in, in this kind of wetland or bioretention cell system so that we can then better operate and um, design wetland and bioretention cell system to make them more efficient really at um, managing a given type of pollution. And that could be by having different tanks or cells in series, one dedicated to algae growth, one dedicated to wetlands, uh, like plant uptake, things like this, um, for example. So you're focusing on passive systems because they shouldn't be very expensive and they can probably be utilized in, in many areas without a lot of infrastructure requirements, right? Absolutely. And um, and they've shown great potential and they've been used for decades, for example, in just in oil and gas industry, mining industry, uh, chemical effluent industry, agricultural areas. I mean, they, they, they can do quite a good job. And the main thing that you need is, is room, right? Room for a big wetland. Um, and then you need sun and it, it uses this natural energy of, of the sun and the microbes growing in the system. 
and the plants growing in, in this biodegradable cells or wetland system. So it is more cost efficient, or, or at least that's one of the goal to make them, you know, that's more cost efficient system. What about using like cyclones or settling tanks or things like that in addition to sand filters? Is that considered passive and is that useful? It's not the passive that I work on. Passive would mean that you don't really need external energy, such as, you know, electricity to power a pump. So, but the sand filter, you know, this passive water treatment system, they can be designed in many, many different ways. A wetland actually has wetlands, constructed wetlands have many different designs. And some of them is basically a gravel bed that's planted and you can have the water coming from the bottom and going up or, or pouring from the top down uh, to the bottom. So there are many different ways to operate the system. And by engineering them a little bit, so sometimes you do need some energy to make the water flow the way you want, but you can really improve their efficiency. And this has been shown to be very efficient in often in small scale uh, municipal waste, wastewater treatment where they, they just treat their own wastewater just with this type of engineered wetland system. And it works pretty well. Well, what does it look like? How is it passive and how does the geometry make it more efficient? Yeah, I mean, often you have several tanks or several cells in series. You do um, have often systems in parallel so that if one is you know, out of order or you want the plant to return to a healthier uh, vegetation status, then you can, um, you can let the system rest and then use the other parallel line. So that's kind of a, a classic strategy. Um, sometimes you do have pumps you know, to make the water flow the way you want. Um, and it, and it's, I've seen system you know, in, in small or like 1,000 people type cities where they use uh, this upflow wetland. So the water comes from the bottom and then come back to the top and then it returns. <laughs> it kind of flows back like a, a little fountain. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it works well. Sometimes you have birds coming in. Um, it, 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 it can be quite attractive. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to learn more about your work and to see examples of it? Where can they go? Uh, they can check my website uh, for sure and, um, and uh, look at our research papers. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Elodie, thank you so much for coming on the call. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.